this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are hosting a roundtable discussion on um, what I have termed disappearing acts. You could also put them into the uh, where are they now file or uh, mm. whatever happened to so-and-so. Uh, these are basically bands that sold a lot of records. I'm talking like five times platinum, five million or more records. Right. In the 90s, and then by the time we hit the 2000s, so this could be like, you know, four, five, six years later, they are just, they've disappeared. They they are From, not, from, from record sales? From or? record sales, from radio relevancy, from MTV, from popular culture. And in some cases may have even become a punchline. Like they went from being the most popular band at the time to becoming something of a of a of a joke. I I have some theories. Some of them are probably logical. Some of them are, are probably highly illogical. But we're gonna mm-hmm. tackle them. And uh, mm-hmm. to help us do so, we've got uh, some returning guests. Jay, you know both these people. I know both these people. <laughs> uh, joining us from. Whereabouts in Michigan? Uh, Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, that's right. Oh, Mr. Eric J. Peterson. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming back. And then, Not uh, a problem. To my right, literally, is uh, my wife, Katie Minichi, the voice of the podcast, the photographer for the Promo West Fest that we recently attended. Hi. Hi. You joined us on uh, what podcast? What episode? The Chibamato sure episode. And yeah. was there a roundtable that you did? You join us for the live. Sh- episode or concerts concerts yeah yeah okay festivals maybe something like that what was your favorite concert of the 90s something along those lines yeah so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about bands individually we're going to start with a band and then work our way through and maybe we'll find a common thread maybe we won't the one that kind of got me in terms of why I, i even thought of this was the band live because live was everywhere in the mid-90s. This was probably the band that, in terms of who you thought was going to be maybe the, the taker of the torch so to speak, after Pearl Jam and, and those bands, they put out, you know, the, their first release was an independent release, and then I think it got picked up by Major as after that. And then they ended up putting out their second record, Throwing Copper. Was that A&M? Is that the right label that I'm thinking of? Yeah, I think so. Sold 8 million copies of that record. Now today, 8 million copies of, of an album, you'd be put up there with Elvis and Michael Jackson because it's impossible to sell <laughs> el- 8 million copies of anything. But Live did it with Throwing Copper. They had a, a number of singles, huge singles with videos that went with every single one of them. They're constantly on television. 
So you have, you know, lightning crashes, I alone, all over you. I mean, there was just bl- blanketed for probably like two years straight. Sony BMG. Oh, they're on Sony BMG. Okay, thank you. So that, when they're on BMG, does that mean they're automatically a part of the music club? <laughs> it does. It does. I'm pretty sure that's so, how I got the album. So here's the thing about that music club. I always heard that those were written off as promos and didn't actually count towards their sales. Oh. Yeah, I've heard something similar to that, too. Like, uh, actually, in the research for this episode, there was a little caveat around, uh, I can't remember what band, but it was it gave the figure, and then it says, you know, and who knows how many record club issues or, you know, releases. Hmm. I wonder if that's because, because I think first... that was... Yeah, those were uh, it was a big tax write off I think for the labels because they could claim they gave those away and then write up, write all that off. Um, so it was and, a big money maker for them. That's and, how they afford to give you twelve of them for a penny. And also, they don't have to pay the band for a royalty. They can actually deduct yep. that from their promotional yep. budget. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it actually hurts the band, even though they're selling records. I was just a kid, Bastards. man. You were just a kid and you were doing that. Okay. I got a lot of records like that in the 90s, too, so... Okay. Uh, I don't know anyone who didn't. Yeah. Oh, I definitely took advantage of it. So, the album that follows it up... Anybody remember what that was called? No. Secret Samadhi? Secret Samadhi! Yeah. I dare anybody to uh, to actually... Bikini's Juice? Yes. So that comes out in 97. There's, There's actually a a number of singles. Lakini's Juice was the first one, which any a juice in the title is just weird. It just it's off-putting to me. Right. I don't know who Lakini is, and I don't yeah. know why we have his juice, but apparently it's important. Well, that's going to come back to... evening in the sun. Doesn't that's going to come back to my explanation of uh, why they're no longer relevant. But right. so, And then the, tr- the second single, anybody remember what the second single was? No. Turn oh. My Head. Oh, yeah. Turn My Head. And then they also released singles for Rattlesnake and Freaks, but they didn't really do anything. So I, my theory is twofold. One, that this record, even though it sold well in comparison to... It was it debuted at number one on the Billboard chart. It ended up selling... Uh, what was it? it? It sold a lot. It sold two million copies. Mm-hmm. Wow. I bought it. It was... Them clearly, they were trying to be a harder-edged band with that's a drop D riff on on Lakini's Juice. The real collapse to me is the 1999 album, The Distance to Here, with the first single, The Dolphins Cry. <laughs> Here's my theory: the when you use a dolphin in any way, shape, or form, you are you are jumping the shark. With your Jumping band, the nothing is less rock and roll than a dolphin. It's the strange mm. video with Guns N' Roses, dolphins. Yeah, but the they weren't singing rel- about the dolphin. <laughs> no, but he's in the video. It's part of the imagery. There's <clears throat> dolphin sounds on that song. Yeah, that's my theory with that. No, I, I think that that was a band that it probably got overexposed on the Throwing Copper record. And then when yeah. Secret Samadhi came out, people went, oh, God, the rat tail's back. Yeah, <clears throat> I think Secret Samadhi, yeah, it was the first signs of, uh-oh, this band is, I guess the best way, simplest way I could put it is they're painfully pretentious from, mm-hmm. <laughs> from the beginning. Like, I mean, they <clears throat> wrap themselves in religious imagery, both Christian and Hindu, um, you know, very serious, never 
no, no sense of humor about themselves whatsoever. Um, and for a couple records, I think with the, the climate of the music world and just just musically, I think they were it was fine. It worked. But I think when you start to get the secret Samadhi and they start pushing th- that, I read a really great quote. And I, and I think starting especially with, with that record and the, and the ones that follow, you start to hear lyrics that are head scratchers. Dolphins, mm-hmm. for one. Uh, and and I started sure. just pulling some lyrics, and um, al- along the way of doing that, I ca- came up to a great quote from uh, a Bo Doer who writes for Popdos, and his quote was, "At times, listeners couldn't be sure whether they were listening to, to Topographic Oceans era Yes or Cherry Pie era Warrant." <laughs> <laughs> I think and, that, that <clears throat> I think that's interesting because I think with both of those bands, they that uh, were referenced were bands that maybe overstayed the, the scene and the sound for too long. Yeah. Some, I, some of my favorite lines were, um, I can smell your armpits. You stole my idea. This puke smells like beer. <laughs> Another was picked you up by your puffy, puppy dog scruff. And, oh, I remember uh, that. Can you hear the dolphins cry? See the rose ri- road rise up to meet us. It's like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Like, it sounds like very profound and important, but you're, it's very it means nothing. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember about this time, too, like, I was a huge Rolling Stone fan. I mean, as soon as it would come out, I would read it cover to cover. And they started really, really negatively covering his attitude. Like, hmm. I remember reading a couple, like, it stayed with me enough that when you brought up live, it's one of the first things I thought of. And Other than the fact that I always miss say his name as Ted Kaczynski but that's totally <laughs> totally, right. totally other but um, I remember reading some articles that really talked about like him having sort of like a Barbara Streisand kind of an attitude but not Barbara well if you remember Jay when we talked to John Fine from Bitch Magnet and um, the Your Band Sucks book he talked about because I think we brought up about opening for larger bands and he brought up that a friend of his had opened for live and when they were out on tour. They were they, the guys in live were like showing him Billboard magazines, like, "Hey, look at we just hit you know another single just went to number whatever on the Billboard chart." Like they were very yeah. I on saw top them live, of... and they talked about themselves. Wow. Yeah. So that article you read in Rolling Stone was probably not far off from the uh, the truth in terms of. Them... I mean, they performed well. In concert, but they did in between songs talk about themselves, which was not interesting to me as a teenage girl. But yeah, I, I remember Mental Jewelry. I would have thought, you know, somebody like Rolling Stone loved that record. I remember it got, a, I felt like it when it first came out, it got a lot of critical acclaim. And they were a very promising band because I think they were very young. Like, yeah, they were. They, they, they look like little boys in the video for Operation Spirit. <laughs> and I think we, I'll go back and listen to that briefly. I mean, it, it does sound pretty fresh and different so it's just amazing to me within really two records after that suddenly things start to take a turn and spiral to what they are now which is irrelevant mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well i mean now the band is uh, ed quelchuk <clears throat> left the band after their 2006 album and he's been doing solo work ever since and i believe that the rest of the guys i think they replaced him and they still tour his live um, which is, you know, in terms of comparing them to um, Warrant earlier, Eric, yeah. that's, uh, you know, uh, some of these, yeah, some of these bands from the '90s have have taken that same turn of like 
replacing key members with uh, fill-ins and continuing yeah. soldiering on because of disagreements. It's funny, during your intro when you said, uh, in the where are they now file, my mind immediately went to that scene in Spinal Tap when they're on the way to the concert, they're mm-hmm. listening to the radio, and they hear the DJ say that about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I knew it was bad when Ed Kowalchuk played the <laughs> Columbus Casino, and is, it's not a that, venue that people go to. Is that the new version of playing the State Fair? I think that is. The Casino... Um, circuit is like the new state fair circuit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think, I think that you're, you're all correct. I also think that there was uh, definitely a generational shift in uh, mm-hmm. music listening and buying habits. Radio had radically changed. Um, you know, obviously I've spoken before about the telecom act, but the modern rock radio format didn't I mean as as it was in say ninety four ninety five when throwing copper was huge, I mean that was really dead two years later. Right. Th- those stations did not stick around for very long. Additionally, right. MTV MTV was making inroads into their um, reality television and non music oriented um, programming, so people weren't necessarily by ninety nine definitely not seeing the videos. The, the way they had, you know, in 93, 94. And also the uh, the rock magazine landscape had shrunk a lot. You know, when you look at the early 90s, there was, you know, Rolling Stone and um, Spin and Alternative Press. But there was a whole lot of, you know, circus and metal circus yeah. and rip and just on and on and on of uh, magazines covering different different parts of the underground and different parts of... Uh, different genres yeah. that you could get at your local grocery store, and that was that was gone by ninety seven, ninety eight for the most part. Yeah, I so, think it's also relevant too that like um, a band like Live could have maybe at one point put in, put in the same put on the same playlist as like a Pearl Jam, but I think the difference is that I was talking to Tim about brand before we started talking. I don't mm-hmm. think that they had a strong enough base as a band. Live didn't have enough of a following. They didn't have like a nerdy niche like Pearl Jam does. So yeah. you get inundated on MTV and that's all well and good. But I think that's where most of their base came from. And then when those fickle people, which at the time was me, lose interest, they didn't have a base to fall back on. Whereas like Pearl Jam tries something new and, <clears throat> And teenagers don't like it. Well, they still have, like, all their guys that will go to every concert. You know, like, they can try yeah. something new. Live can't. I thought it was, I was go going to bring, bring up Pearl Jam, too, because I thought the exact same thing in terms of how they they were able to go out and reinvent themselves as a live band, almost in a Grateful Dead kind of yeah. following. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, yeah, that's sustained them. That's made them different. Had they not done that? I don't know. I mean, they might be. I mean, they haven't had tons of uh, album sales um, in the same way that they, Live you know, had. They just had such a large base before they were big, and I just don't think Live did. Yeah, I think, I think Pearl Jam also is the the last of the great pillars of grunge standing until mm-hmm. we get we get the revamped, you know, Soundgarden and the re, you know the revamped Alice in Chains. Meanwhile, they're the only ones that have continuously been going for since what 91 yeah. so 
there there is a little bit of that cachet. You know, the, the interesting thing about live is, um, so I had the CD. I, I might actually still have a copy of it around here somewhere. But in college, I remember, you know, my my roommate who was uh, really into you know power pop and plays drums and uh, you know we he was into the punk rock and rap and metal. He liked it. And then the goth girl that that I uh, was friends with kind of liked it as well. So I mean, it it kind of crossed genres. Mm-hmm. And I was really into heavy metal in those years, so it kind of crossed genres as far as the fan base went. But I think uh, first of all, a lot of us graduated from college and had to get jobs and mm-hmm. weren't really thinking about you know music the way we had been three or four years earlier. But when you appeal so broadly across a spectrum. Yeah, you can get a lot of record sales, but it's also very tenuous to hold on to that group, yeah. to those groups. There was a lot of crossover in the 90s, I think, you know, because it was sort of a, there was a lot of shifting going on in terms of what music was being made. And I think that that was really tumultuous for a lot of people. Like, it's hard to keep your base. Well, a, a band that I want to bring up in correlation to all this is one that Jay and I were texting about earlier, which is the Cranberries. Amazing amount of records sold. The first three mm-hmm. albums, what was it, Jay? 15 million albums? The first three The first that... three sold 15 million in the U.S., 40 million worldwide. Those are astounding numbers. They had so many singles off of those first three. And then the fourth album, Bury the Hatchet, 377,000 as a last check. I mean, just an absolute drop-off from... Two million, two million with the, the faithfully to the faithful departed, and the thing that Jay brought up, which you want to talk about a little bit, is their numbers domestically obliterate bands that are you think of as being much bigger, like the one that you brought up, Jay, when we were texting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just for comparison, I well, I actually thought well, Oasis might uh, fit this format. They don't fit it because no record sold more than four million in the U.S. And in fact, the first three combined only sold six million so the cranberries first three records sold 15 and oasis in in the u.s only sold six Hmm. i think of oasis being way more hyped and thought of as being a bigger band in hindsight um than the cranberries but they were not not in the u.s at least did the cranberries get there before oasis i think that might have been i seem to recall oasis being kind of on on the tail end of that, of the whole wave of uh, alternative stuff. So the and first think... Cranberries record came out in '93, mm-hmm. and that's the one with the basically the two big singles off of that are "Dreams" and "Linger." Okay. So yes, and it kind of right. established the band as being sort of a, uh, you know, poppy but not aggressive. Right. And then '94 mm-hmm. is when "No Need to Argue" comes out, and that has "Zombie" on it. Which is probably a very divisive song. Some people probably, 
are sick of the hell of Dolores O'Riordan screaming zombie over and over again. But it did this, produce a lot of other singles. This is the point where you have to drop in the David Spade clip from Saturday Night Live where he talks about how he uh, he was a fan of uh, the Cranberries with their early kind of very lush orchestrated pop and then makes fun of the whole zombie thing. Right. Yeah. Do you know that? Do you remember that? I vaguely remember that. Which I, I think is maybe the summation of that that shock to people's system because like I said, they, they, they were looking at a very very lush, accessible, um, you know, Brit pop, but alternative band that crossed over at least in the States. Mm -hmm. And then you come out with something so harsh as zombie. Right. And they followed it up with Ode to my family, which is much more in the vein of Mm -hmm. the first album. Well, that's what I have. That was my initial assumption was that, okay, when they shifted to zombie, maybe it alienated, certain fans oh, that was a huge single the yeah one. and as i i looked at the, the that material on that record and the material after it it's still pretty well mixed in terms of i mean they still did the lush kind of celtic sounding dreamy yeah. almost you know uh shoegaze at times stuff as just as much on the follow-up records as they yeah, did like free to decide on the third <clears throat> record to the faithful departed is much more in that vein than <clears throat> salvation which was the lead single it actually led me down the road with this band as being, I think, two points. One would be, I, I think somebody touched on it, that rock alternative rock radio became way less alternative. So, like, yeah. if you go look at their records as they're classified on Apple Music, one record is considered adult contemporary, one is considered Celtic contemporary, one is considered rock, one is considered alternative. Mm-hmm. Celtic the, contemporary. Yeah. That, That's a thing. And that... And those those are records that came out within one year of each other. So, you guys might know a little bit more about this than I, than I do. But at what point did like the Jack and the Billy and the the radio format that was taking basically classic rock, eighties hits, and then hits of the nineties and mixing them come in? Because to me, that kind of replaced what was modern rock radio. That's a good question. That's that Jack radio format. I think was. In the like very early 2000s or late 90s, hmm. um, I'm just googling it right now, actually. Okay, because um, and, and you know this this while you're googling, this is also the the era of record uh, or I'm sorry, radio company consolidation mm-hmm. and um, much fewer chances being taken with playlists. And, and something we didn't talk about with uh, with live and Pearl Jam is have you guys seen the Pearl Jam 20 documentary? Yeah. I think it's Perry Farrell who talks about about 96 when all of that stuff was going on with MTV and radio that a lot of the record companies started moving towards the, uh, you know, we need the hit for the quarter because they had been bought up by big corporations that needed to have the, you know, the the hit on the balance sheet for each quarter as opposed sure. to well, previous to that when an A&R person could you know, say, hey, we need to give this guy Bruce Springsteen three albums or four albums before he hits, and everyone will go back and buy the earlier one. And they were also moving towards uh, pre-manufactured pop, because this is one of the things Perry Farrell talks about, is why are we wasting our time and, and all this money with you know, unreliable musicians who could die of a heroin overdose any day? Why do we need Guns N' Roses? Why do we need Nirvana? Why do we need Alice in Chains when we can just get these teeny bopper kids from Disney... We can pump them out every every three months, and if you know 
one of them keeps us afloat for the next two quarters, great. If not, we'll just get the next one. Yeah, I think um, I think that happened, and what it did is it, it to me, it closed down the the variety that we were hearing. So by the end of the decade, it really it got to the point where even if you look at a band like um, because because they continue to have you know pretty big singles through the through at least ninety seven, mm-hmm. um. But by the end of the decade, if you look at a band like U2, for them to stay relevant, I mean, they just had a cut straight to pop radio. I mean, Beautiful Day is, there's no subtlety about that song. There's no, you know, you don't hear any Irish influences anymore. I mean, they are just a straight up pop band. Yeah, it's a straight up (laughs) pop song that you could play on pop radio. It didn't rely on alternative radio anymore. Um, So, and I don't think the Cranberries could do that. They're a little bit. They're a little too quirky sounding, um, so they really needed to have that format there uh, for them to continue to have big radio hits. I just don't think they could. You could pluck one of those songs out and throw it on straight up pop radio. It's just a little too. Uh, her voice is too different. The musically, it's a little too ethnic. Yeah, ethnic. It's just not quite. It won't fit. I know this might seem kind of crazy, but because I was pretty young, I would say too like. I equated her with Sinead O'Connor. And I mean, like, I didn't mix them up. But sort of like the imagery of seeing Sinead O'Connor, like, rip up the Pope's picture. Like, all that kind of stuff that was happening on SNL. Like, I just assumed whether or not they really were that the Cranberries were super political, too. Mm. Well, the imagery in the zombie video is political. Right. It was kind of, not that it, it, uninteresting is the wrong word. It was not something that I could that I could really get involved with as a 15, 16 year old. Like, mm-hmm. so I liked the song, but it didn't have any staying power with me because I didn't really understand what they were about. You weren't you weren't researching Sinn Fein and no, that was Northern that Ireland. was so far from my fight <laughs> that, that it just yeah. you know yeah. like like I think a lot of American teenagers probably felt that way. Yeah. So this this is also part of um, some something we talked about before we started recording, which is the fate of a lot of female artists and uh, female front women during this era. I yeah. mean, we had Sarah McLachlan, who sells, you know, two million in, in the U.S. and five million in Canada. You get Jewel, who sells eight mil, or you know, twelve times platinum. You get Alanis Morissette, who apparently sold sixteen million copies of oh, yeah. Jagged Little Pill. You yeah. get Shania Twain selling 12 mil, 12 million records i mean that was a crossover you get cheryl crow you get dido doing 21 million worldwide and natalie and Bruger, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh tori amos and mm-hmm. i'm just gonna throw in you know in 1990 Roxette sold 11 million records worldwide which is you know um coming out of a different scene but still right. uh with some of those you can look at them and go okay like Tori Amos and Sarah McLaughlin and, you know, Roxette, they all go back to whatever Canada or the UK or, um, you know, Sweden in the case of Roxette or wherever they're, you know, Natalie and Brugge goes back to Australia or whatever. Sure. But there, there is a, there's something about the change from those women dominating the charts and then having others that didn't quite dominate the charts like, you know, Liz Fair. And the whole, you know, all the little fair people. Apple, Meredith yeah. Brooks, yeah. Joan Osborne. Right. Exactly. But then you get 96, you know, 97, 98, we start getting the Christina Aguilara yeah. and 
you know, um, Britney Spears and mm-hmm. however many that we've totally forgotten about that, that start dominating the charts. So, you know, these were women that were that were singing uh, largely about things they cared about, things coming from their point of view that were strong, and it's replaced with. I hate to keep Hit picking me, on baby, the mouse more time. Exactly. So it's okay. That, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> but th- but that's the reality of what happened. Right. Yep. Like the sexy schoolgirl thing just killed feminism and feelings. <laughs> I mean, I like to think that there were a bunch of. Uh, you know, 14-year-old girls out there discovering whatever, you know, 1998 punk rock underground, you know, strong young women making music was going on. But reality is that, you know, it didn't see a lot of that from the young people that I knew. Right. You know, my, my younger cousins and my older cousins' children and that kind of, those kind of people were not into that music at all. Well, in my defense, because I'm probably closer to that age, I would say also there was there was kind of like um, a little surge of like good hip hop too. Like I was kind of discovering that, so like I was really switching over to like Lauren Hill and Jill Scott and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, which I think still holds up. I mean, so. There was that kind of a shift, too, but all of that was going away from that, like, festival, Lilith Fair. Well, you had the, the whole separation of the, yeah, the Lilith, instead of Lollapalooza and having a variety of artists, you had Lilith Fair divided and then Warp Tour and OzFest and, and Bonner, not Bonner, what was, what's, the, what's the jammy one? Um, the Horde Tour. Horde Tour. Horde Tour. Yeah. Is it, this, oh, I forgot this, about that one. Is this the part where we talk about Hootie, Blues Traveler, Spin yeah, Doctors? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, harmonicas. Yeah, harmonicas and and wah-wah pedals. But no, I mean, I, th- I think that that's a huge point, though, like the whole Mickey Mouse Club graduation. Well, like, record labels saw that, you know, they could either deal with, you know, uh, a jewel or a... Alanis Morissette or one of those artists who has some, you know, critical, some positive critical feedback, or they can just put out a manufactured, completely image controlled uh, pop artist in the in the vein of Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera. Because you got to remember, like Alanis Morissette, for as being as you know hugely popular, there was also like mild controversy around like the you ought to know lyrics oh, because sure. because of the language that was used. And then she went on to play God in a Kevin Smith movie. Which was awesome. Right? But again, that that was a movie. Dogma was, like, boycotted by the Catholic yeah. League. And, well, you I know, mean, it's it's a lot harder to manage the career and the, and the PR of a person who is not under the thumb 100% of a record label in, in the way that so a pop you, artist is. You could is. say that about Alanis, but, you know, when you're talking about, like, Sheryl Crow or Jewel, um, who... You know, have have a little bit of an edge to them. They're not yeah. seem they don't seem like they're being pushed around, and they they seem like they're, you know, adults who understand this is a job and that they want to right. be collaborative. So it's kind of like, you know, and maybe that's why both of them wound up kind of in the country music world, right. because they're they're allowed to do that stuff now. But um, it, it just seems like, 
basically, I think that the record companies wanted to sell a product to 15-year-old girls and not worry about the adults. I would actually venture to say that they were really going for 15 to 25-year-old men, not girls. Because, and you know, since you were hoping a lady was here this evening, I'll just go ahead and give that perspective. Like, we just watched um, pretty much every OJ documentary. And Mm -hmm. now that I'm an adult female, like... What Marsha Clark went through, for example, which was happening at the same time as all the music we're talking about, is horrific to me today. But that was still sort of normal. And even though we're talking about a list of beautiful women, no one really wants to see a beautiful woman nurse a pig. So, like, yeah, Tori Amos is pretty, but she's no Britney Spears. Like, there was definitely a lot of marketing going on and... I'm sure a lot of shifting with the labels because those women you're describing, like even Dido and I don't know, any of them, like they, they weren't dressing the part, they weren't looking the part. And young boys were really buying more albums probably than women. You guys are making me, uh, you guys are making me like sit here and think. Um, I think a lot of times on this show, Tim and I, <clears throat> some of our roundtables, we, Maybe we overstate how much the actual audience drives what's going on in the cha- in the chains and trends, mm-hmm. yeah. and and maybe it's maybe it's just all orchestrated marketing. You know what I mean? Like, right? Meaning, like the way that things shifted so dramatically in the early '90s. I mean, I don't know. There's very little moments in pop culture, American pop culture, where you can see that literally overnight. There was a concerted effort across every label, every marketing um, angle, angles for marketing. Everybody went all in on this grunge thing, like mm-hmm. with a flip of a switch. So you think in a boardroom they decided we're going to make everybody <laughs> think they like grunge? <laughs> well, no. I, well, I think it was like, boy, we're having a hard time selling this pop crap, but like the hair metal stuff and the whatever is going mm-hmm. on. Like, let's push this. And I think these are people who are sheep and they see somebody pushes, makes makes it, uh, takes a chance with somebody like Nirvana or whoever. And everybody else just instantly jumps on to say, this is where we're going. Get on, sign all these bands, push them, push them, push them. And you get, you know, eight years of, of that. And it gets to the point where it's like, okay, well, nobody's buying, you know, we're starting to lose sales on all this serious music stuff. So what are we going to do next? And somebody says, okay, well, let's. You know, shift in this direction. They just all jump on on board. Well, there's always the the cycle of pop, though. Like the late 80s had a cycle of pop. The late 90s had a recycling of pop. You go back to the, you know, late 70s and Uh, and that era of pop. I mean, there's there's always a cyclical sort of... I also think at this time we were seeing, as I talked about earlier, the labels being bought up by bigger entities. Mm -hmm. And something that I've heard over and over from artists that was going on was, you know, you get signed to a label and you go and you record your album. And by the time you get ready to release it, everybody that was there when you were signed that was excited about it has moved on to another label or been fired. Additionally, a lot of it seems like a lot of Gen Xers were brought in on low levels into a lot of these labels. And rather than being allowed to stick around and kind of guide the labels into the world of the internet or whatever, a lot of them were pushed out or shut down. And um, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Do you guys remember uh, Lon Friend from uh, yep. Friend at Large on Headbangers Ball? 
Mm-hmm. Yep. He was the editor of Rip Magazine, and he got a job as an A&R guy at, I want to say Mercury. I don't remember which label. He wrote a book about it that's pretty good. Um, and he he was told over and over, we're going to back you on, on you know whatever you want to sign. And he signed some band called The Bogmen, and they sold okay, but not enough. So he was never able to sign another band. And several of the bands that he tried or artists he tried to get on the label went on to great success. And eventually he left. But his point in his book is he talks about they tell you this good game. But at the end of the day, you know, it's if you don't hit it out of the park right away, you're done and you moved on. And the band that you've left at your label is just stuck with, um, you know, whoever's there. Uh, I actually am friends with the people that are uh, in uh, the Von Bondies. And that's part of their story is that when it came time for their second album, that the label were like, nope, you don't sound emo enough, and you were signed by the previous regime, so we're just going to wait it out. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of that going on as well. Right. And it's well documented. I mean, it's not. I'm not making any news here saying that uh, labels can make hits just by paying for things to be played mm-hmm. enough. You right. know, so you can influence people to like things just by giving them nothing else to listen to, and well, suddenly they become science. familiar with it, and mm-hmm. the more you they hear like something, it. The more it makes sense to you. Well, and, you find and that's patterns in it. And that's part of the radio consolidation too, where you used to have to go from station to station to station to do that. Now you just go to Cumulus or Infinity or Clear Channel or whatever, and you right. deal with one or two people. And hey, that's it for the country. Yep. So I want to back up a sec because when we were in the um, the Horde tour a- area. Uh, Blues Traveler came up. Now, this is a band that sold... Uh, and it's an interesting story because they were on A&M for... This was their fourth album, Four. Mm-hmm. So they weren't like a band that got instantly signed, turned out a five million, six million selling record. Like They were actually, I guess you could say, developed, in a sense, yeah. by A&M. It was their fourth album, came out in 1994, sold six million copies. The, everybody knows Runaround. Everybody knows Hook. Those were the two... Huge singles off of that record. Basically, that was it. They put out another record three years later, straight on till morning. I don't think any of us can name a single off of that record. If you can, you win a prize. So many Peter Pan references. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Now we know why. Uh, You know, Blues Traveler is a band that I never got into, but Mm -hmm. in looking at them, found out that actually a guy that went to my high school wound up playing keyboards for them. Oh, that's nice. I mean, Tim, as you told that story, though, I'm sitting here thinking in the 70s, that was very typical. That was what a rock band's career at, at best was, right? You you developed yourself. You spent a couple years working on things. It wasn't about image. Eventually, if you honed your craft, you got a radio hit or two. And then from there, you pretty much could either split up in different bands or just try to slog, it off, slog, slog your way through a career that, you know, you're okay. Like, you can play live and... You figure it out. They're, they're kind of the anomaly. Like, that didn't happen very much in the 90s. It was like crash and burn, you know, and they're, I, I would imagine they can probably still tour and do sort of the, I think they are. the festivals. Yeah. Fine. Here's my question, though. When we talked to Jacob Schlichter from Semisonic, he talked about how they are still in debt to the record label for feeling strangely fine and as a band overall. Because they spent so much money promoting the band and using independent promoters and and pushing, you know, to get the the, the songs out and whether I guess it would be all three albums. They only had three albums and they're still a million dollars in debt. This band had 
three albums before they even had a hit. And then they didn't have another one after that. Yeah. I, 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 I got to imagine they're still probably in debt, even though they sold six million copies, which was more than, I think he said, a million and a half that they sold of, of Feeling Strangely Fine. Um, but they're they're a touring they're a much stronger touring band than Semisonic overall. Yeah, sure. they're plugged they're plugged into an uh, an underground scene that keeps on going. Whether it's you know playing Monica with the Grateful Enthusiast. Dead or playing with Big Head Todd and the Monsters or any of those those bands from that era that I'm, I'm sure that they're you know they're not looking at topping the charts, but probably as with metal, they have a fan base that will come out and see them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that style of music is very still very strong from a live standpoint there's always festivals and stuff going on that those right. bands can play at and I, I bet you they also uh are able to go overseas with that music as well go to europe go to asia yeah because they don't have taste over pack there. all those uh <laughs> harmonicas up in road cases wow kidding joking <laughs> no i i, I get it Generalization. I, but do you think that in terms of that this was a niche band that sort of just like broke through at the right time when the floodgates opened from like 94 to 96 where anybody could sort of yeah. have put out a yeah. weird hit, hit album T- to me they're like they're like peter frampton or like i mean lips 38 special or like any of these bands where you're just like out of nowhere the the right time hits they have the right song and it breaks through and they were sort of always there right it's just Something weird happens, things connect, and next thing you know, they're on the radio. That might be hey, the were... first mention of 38 Special on this podcast. <laughs> like, you could go through the 70s and 80s. There's, you know, hundreds of bands like that where you're like, yeah. how, did this band, how did this band have a hit? Like, well, how did this happen? Hey, they, they even had their own behind the music, so. They did. That's true. That's because John Popper's crazy. I mean, he's a crazy man. So, and didn't somebody true. die in that band, too? <clears throat> I think so. Actually, I think the, the keyboard player... Who, who was replaced by a guy from my high school was the one that died, I believe. Hmm. Huh. It was the keyboard players that were messing around, messing around with the drugs in the 90s and dying. That's what happened with the mm. Pumpkins, too. Jonathan Melvoy. Yeah, but, you know, Shannon Hoon, Andrew Wood, yeah. Christina Paff. I mean, the, the list goes on. Bradley on. Noel, yeah. yeah. Um, a band that uh, I don't think any of us will count as, a, as fans, uh, that I, but I do, we do need to talk about them, and that's Creed. Uh, this is a band that sold a buttload of records. I, I have twenty. Record. I have twenty-three million for the first three records combined. Twenty-three million. Don't you think it's possible that like a lot of those people didn't realize they were Christian? No. And then bought it and went, oh, oh. So no. Here's 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 something else that was going on in the '90s. The number one retailer of music became Best Walmart. Buy. Oh, Walmart. And ah. what records doesn't Walmart carry? Anything with a tipper sticker on it. So mm. Creed was not necessarily going to have a tipper sticker. So oh, a, kid, wow. a kid in middle of nowhere, Nebraska or what Idaho or parental advisory. Oh, that's slang. You know, PMRC, Al Gore, his wife. Got it. Professional hearings. Yeah. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, evils of prints, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So you want you were at the Walmart with your mom and mom and mom or dad and you wanted to get some rock music. This was the record that you picked up. Yep. Yeah. And even if you know, hey, they're a Christian band or one of the guys is rumored to be Christian. That's so much the better. I mean, mm-hmm. not one of them crazy, you know, drug addict homosexuals or whatever from the coasts. <laughs> Which he ended up being at least a, a, a crazy drug well, addict. Maybe, but I mean, 
I mean, that, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what, what it, you know, you get into the middle of the country in some places and, and that's a lot more important than people yeah. think. Yeah, sure. That's a great point. But this is really but, the, uh, the, the, the watered down grunge equivalent of say like a poison for that era or, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's trickster. It's what it is. It's, it's trickster that sold yeah. a lot. Yeah. Trisha's you, a good, good one, yeah. It's like the third third or fourth iteration of something that's so distilled down that it has absolutely no integrity left or mm-hmm. creativity. Like a photocopy <laughs> like of the photocopy? music. It's music for the sake yeah, of yeah. imitating the music before it to sell records. Yeah. Because yeah. so I think your this... quote was like, Pearl Jam doesn't sound like Pearl Jam anymore, so we're going to try to sound like Pearl Jam. Like, essentially, that's what they were saying at the time. Like, we want to yeah. sound like... Cool. Even flow and alive because Pearl didn't, doesn't want to make that music anymore because they at that point they were past like like stadium they were rock. doing like yield and and uh you know what was the one after that binaural and and those records no code yeah even but even no code has like some rockers on it like hail hail and you know I See, actually I, I I don't know I jumped off after uh, verses to be honest me too and that's and that's <laughs> fair you know and that's. That's interesting because I was a huge Pearl Jam fan with 10. I thought 10 was amazing. Yeah. And then Versus just kind of left me cold. And part of it was they they were changing, which I understand now. But part of it was I was changing and getting into something different as well. Right. Yeah, keep, keep in mind, I mean, Creed uh, – it's maybe this is how you phrase this. Creed, you could say, technically exists in that there's a band called Alter Bridge where they just replaced Scott Stapp and it's the whole – rest of the band is the same and they do pretty well like they're not selling 23 million records but they they do really well in in terms of being able to at least uh tour large theaters and and whatnot so i think it kind of comes down to him like maybe well, he's again, just a, a, you know, a terrible I, I person ted earlier i remember reading about him being an awful person mm. yeah right and that so, was even so, before like really the internet was a day-to-day part of my life like again i think it was probably in rolling stone or something like that but i mean he had a reputation from the beginning and it was not it was not interesting it was just like villainous yeah (laughs) you know and and then he's you know the songs are so self-righteous you're just like oh i mean i I vaguely remember one was isn't arms wide open it's like Oh yeah, very cool. preachy and just it's like in a messianic pose the entire video. Right, and you're just like, come on. Again, it's sort of the the live problem where you're, dude, you're taking yourself way too serious here, and yeah, creating religious imagery and like getting in places that you're just not going to be able to come back from. Um, so unless you're Madonna, what you, we figured fact, out uh, is that other than Madonna, you can't come back from religious imagery. No. That's not really true. You two had plenty of religious imagery. No, I think that's no. exactly what Jay is saying. Well, I'm saying you have to completely re- reinvent yourself. <laughs> you know what? Like, you're, you're, you no, no, no. You of... have to like think about like you two like pop, right? Yeah. How yeah, different yeah. was that from the '80s? You two think about Madonna. Every record, it's like she's I know. I'm just a completely different person. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have to like wear that like a uh, costume for a while and then move on to a new one. And they didn't sure. do that. Sure. Well, can, you... I, can I tell my Nickelback theory now? Oh, go, oh, go ahead. Okay, so people hate Nickelback. It's whatever. Nickelback is to me the the obvious offspring of Creed. 
you know, they, they somehow hold it together. My whole thing about Nickelback is that because the rock industry, the music industry, radio, MTV, the labels colluded to prevent the the natural occurrence of underground rock and roll from coming to the surface in the early 2000s that uh, Nickelback has had their career extended because they were the last of the, quote, rock bands that were getting the kind of attention where people would discover them all over the world. Hmm. Now, okay. if, if they had just allowed, you know, I don't know, I'm going to say Lucifer or the Helicopters or... You know, uh, any number of underground rock bands that were making great music around the year 2000 to get a little airplay and get on MTV or whatever was passing for MTV, that maybe that would have wiped away all of the creeds and the nickelbacks the way that Nirvana wiped away, you know, Warrant. I hate picking on Warrant, but they're an easy target. Or, you know, Trickster or what was the guy with the chainsaw? Um, Jackal? (laughs) Yeah, there, there you go, Jackal or whatever. I mean, it, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think um, they became in Nickelback in that the synonymous with when you want to say a terrible rock band, you you pluck Creed out or you pluck Nickelback out, right? If you want to make an example of like a really bad rock band, that seems to be the one that pop culture wise, I hear yeah. people mostly go to like late night TV or whatnot. That's the band they're going to say, you know, if. If uh, if the soundtrack of our lives had gotten a push and gotten huge, Nickelback would be just some '90s band that's playing the State Fair, <laughs> yeah, or the valid. casino, as as we mentioned earlier. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to bring up a band, probably or, or possibly because I was wrong about including them on my initial list, and that's Matchbox Twenty. Okay. Because originally I had listed them as as being one of these bands that disappeared because they for their their first album. Yourself or someone like you, they sold 12, mo- 12 million in the U.S. and then another approximately million and a half worldwide, which is interesting because a lot of times you'll see the foreign numbers will be pretty big, but I feel like they were like the American audiences got them a lot better than foreign audiences. Um, for example, they only sold sixty thousand copies in the U.K., which is not a lot. Right. Um, but they had a ton of singles off that first record. It was four years between albums, between the debut record and then the follow-up, which was called Mad Season. That came out in 2000. But there was Push and 3AM and Real World, and we don't need to get into all those because they all make me want to throw up. But <laughs> um, that was a band that was you know just nonstop on the radio. You know, the... the came out in in, uh, 96 so you put it in that i guess second or third wave of of alternative Mm -hmm. in the 90s um that career seems to have been bolstered or or kept alive because of the fact that rob thomas did that song with santana and it -hmm. kept that band somewhat relevant enough outside of matchbox 20 because when I posted this, Andy Hinman, who joined us, the Goo Goo Dolls uh, bass tech, he joined us earlier this year, he mm-hmm. said, hey, I just did a tour with Matchbox 20 in summer 2013. They co-headlined with the Goo Goo Dolls. It was an eight-truck tour and over 10000 per night. So... I yeah. would love to see the age breakdown in that because that Santana song definitely crossed over to the boomers who uh, definitely were a generation that we we're going to go out and buy CDs. Yep. Oh yeah, they turn into a 
like adult contemporary overnight. Same yep. way that the Goo Goo Dolls did. So yeah. that's a good good pairing for them. And that record sold that they were touring for sold uh, just under three hundred thousand copies. You know, so the previous record came out in two thousand two, sold one point four million, and now they're selling under three three hundred thousand. So they become a yeah, they become a touring act. You know, like some of these other bands we've mentioned, like <clears throat> I don't see significant, you know, radio hits or, or, or albums here. I see a band that's got enough of a core fan base that crossed over that can continue to go out and at least tour. Um, right. A little bit more successful, though. Like they're able to do a headlining tour with. Sure. Whereas they're not doing these packaged like Summerland tours where it's like mm-hmm. Everclear, Cracker. Gin Blossoms that each do like seven songs. I just cannot they... imagine Cracker on that tour, but go ahead. Well, I think they did. I think like really, it was wow. like them, and if it wasn't last year, it was the year before. And then it'd be like Sponge and like yeah. you know these bands that really only yeah. have like five or six legitimate songs that people. Sugar would... Ray. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. I mean, they did when I went back and just kind of just listened to them just to get a refresher. The thing that hit me is um, it felt very much like what Bon Jovi is now, like. This middle of the road crossover mm-hmm. band that kind of sounds country, kind of sounds pop. It's got a little bit of a rock feel, just enough to, you know, just give it a little bit of edge. But for the most part, it's just a generic crossover sound. And that's so, is uh, what you're saying is they grew older with their audience. <laughs> yeah, they were smart about you know whether they did it consciously or not. I think Bon Jovi's definitely done consciously to say, oh yeah, who do our fans listen to now? Okay, well, we, that's what we need to sound like. Well, you know, maybe maybe Bon Jovi's right in saying we're not 25 anymore or we're not 32 anymore, and neither is our fan base. The the in the five bands that I I, I posted the pick album covers of um, in our preview for this episode, the fifth one was Hootie and the Blowfish, because they might be the uh, poster child for in terms of 90s um, selling a massive amount on a record, and then by the end of the decade being utterly irrelevant um and then of course is cracked review which came out in um, 1994 sold 16 million in the u.s So that's three times more than the entire Oasis catalog hmm. in the U.S. <laughs> for one record. And they also went to number one in Canada, uh, New Zealand, They their, their gold status in the U.K. So they did sell around the world, believe it or not. Their follow-up, Fairweather Johnson, for all of you Fairweather Johnson fans out there, came out two years later. Now, I thought it was a bigger gap. When I was th- thinking back, but that's relatively sane in terms of, you know, you tour for a year after the record, then you go back in the studio and put out the next record or record the next record. That only sold three million, so that's a massive decline in terms of percentage. But three million is still a respectable mm-hmm. number of, you know, 
albums sold. Just not when you sold 16 million before. Then it's a colossal disaster in terms of albums sold. And you can if see you're... it in terms of the numbers across the across the world, too. They're all down. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at it with the hit for the quarter mentality, yes. I mean, yep. it's, it's oh, they, they lost a third of the, their audience. But they're still selling, you know, three million records. They're still out selling, you know, a whole host of other bands. Right. So here's a question we, we haven't addressed that, that I wanted to throw out there. Does anybody have any thoughts about the change in record sales reflecting the uh, the change in formats available? Because in the early 90s, the cassette tape, and to a much smaller degree, the LP was still viable. But by the mid-90s, it was only CDs. And, you know, there there's a barrier there for a, a mass audience out there. Once again, lots of places in America... You know, there were people that held on to cassette tapes until, you know, till this day and uh, or LPs to till this day and never got on the CD train. Hmm. Well, I, I think in terms of the CD LP thing, I think it becomes more important when you're talking about converting old albums to mm-hmm. like, I don't know how relevant that is in terms of the sales being reflective of whatever the period is i think sound scan had more to do with that coming in and accurately reflecting legitimate numbers which they weren't beforehand because of the fact that hip-hop and country weren't being properly or metal or metal weren't being properly um recorded right um but i don't know uh what do you guys do you guys have thoughts about what eric's saying uh, can you re- I, I'm not sure I'm following. So, so basically what I'm saying is that uh, in the early 90s, you know, con- consumers had maybe three formats to choose yep. from to purchase their music. And by the mid right. to late 90s, it was down to just one being the compact disc. Yep. Well, I wouldn't discount. At a very high price. Yeah. I wouldn't discount, too, that, um, well, one, you know, you, people didn't really buy CD singles. So you couldn't mm-hmm. just like try out so much yep. music the way you could with a cassette. But also, I mean, I went to college in the fall of 99. And by then, I was already kind of switching over to downloading pirated music. <laughs> you yeah, know, I, mean, I, wasn't, that... I wasn't consuming music the same way. And I was at the height of that demographic of purchasing. So, like, I do think that that had to have played a part, too, because... I was then suddenly immersed in like, well, I guess at the time it would have been what the, oh, what's the guy? Huh? Napster? Yeah. I think I had Napster yeah. at the time. Sure. So, you know, I was consuming so differently. And then all of a sudden, like you were saying, like, I wasn't as limited to just the genres that I was hearing on like Midwestern radio too. So like the consumption just completely changed. I don't know. Well, th- I think the other thing that made the CD, the addition of CDs, a little unique in that um, you could go back. There was a legitimate reason to go back and buy stuff you already had, right? I don't think mm-hmm. with cassettes that was very attractive. Sure, some people did it, but you could, you know, get a blank cassette and copy your vinyl to the cassette, and it sounded pretty close to what you would buy if you went to the store. Or with CDs, it was, you know, very much a different listening experience in terms of quality. Um, durability, portability. So there was a lot of people spending 
you know, I can think about myself spending some of my budget on music. I'd be going back and actually buying things that came out 10 or 20 years ago in addition to trying to buy things new. So I was putting my dollar differently than I probably was a decade earlier. Um, So, so another thing that's, that's just occurring to me is, is I have some very vivid memories of being in college in like 93, 94 and going to midnight sales for, you know, in utero and versus and REM's monster and just the lines being out the door. I mean, yep. went to Michigan State University, which 40,000 students and there'd be a thousand people at a midnight sale. And then three years later, uh, when I was still at Michigan State, that going to a midnight sale, I remember getting Nick Cave's murder ballads and, uh, you know, nobody's there or next to nobody's there. And then two years later, going to uh, a tower record midnight sale and being one of like five people there. So I, I think there was a definitely a drop off in that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, these are college towns. So obviously, you know, they're, you're not going to find it in, you know, uh, necessarily in a sleepy suburb with a uh, Sam Goody or whatever, but bigger towns or universities, towns or whatever, there was definitely midnight sales going on and watching that audience dwindle probably, coincided with the dwindling sales of a lot of these acts well as someone who attended the midnight sale for load uh (laughs) i can tell you that uh it was sparse (laughs) and that was after it was like a year or two after vitology in which it was wrapped around (laughs) the block at uh, bowling green state university for for that album but um no I, i agree with what you're saying i think that there was a shift in you know who was buying the music you know, in terms of, and if we talk about like in the Hootie and the Blowfish album, selling 16 million copies, um, you're crossing over into a an audience that isn't music obsessive. They're just mm-hmm. on trend for like, oh, what's the really popular band? It's got five singles on the generic FM station right now. I guess I'll pick up their CD at Best yeah. Buy because it's on the end cap. You know what I mean? Like th- that's not yeah. someone who goes to a midnight sale. And who gives and a shit about the pro I, new program I, record? I, I myself did a lot of that, like in this, like between probably ninety three and ninety six or eight seven. It was there was so much music coming out. The radio was just not sustaining anybody, mm-hmm. and there wasn't an internet yet that was really strong. And it just became very difficult. There was no singles. It became very difficult to figure out like how am I going to spend my money? What band should I spend it on? I don't know if the rest of the record's any good, you know, so I would either join the record. That's when I joined record clubs. I was like, right. well, <laughs> you know, there's 8,000 bands on the radio right now. I don't know if any of these are any good. So I'll just spend a penny and get 12 of them. And, you know, maybe one of them I actually continue to listen to. And the rest of them, I just threw in my CD collection and, and just kept doing that um, or buying used CDs. Well, a lot that, to try that's to- what I wanted to key in on is the used CD market exploded. In the, yeah. in the mid-90s. And there's actually a really good article that was, was just came out on Pitchfork written about used kids records here in Columbus. Mm. And that was a record store that started, people who probably go to used kids now don't know this, but it was actually an afterthought of a record, or radio, or, excuse me, a record store called School Kids that was the Upstairs, which sold vinyl, new vinyl and cassettes uh, in the 80s. And then when CDs started to happen and people were either trading in their vinyl or cassettes 
for to buy CDs or people were trading in CDs, they created used kids for all the used stuff. And initially, it did okay, and school kids did better, but then school kids eventually died out, and the mm. majority of the sale was all the used stuff that was coming yep. in. And they, they talked about they had million-dollar years of profit because used CDs, like they said that like one time some guy who was doing promotion for whatever record label that the Counting Crows was on walked in and said, here, I've got 20 Counting Crows August and everything after. Uh, give me, you know, for these 20 albums, give me 50 bucks, and then you can turn around and sell them for 100 they got. They were like, "Okay, I've never heard of this band, but okay." And then they did just exactly that in the next like five hours, because wow. like these bands would be showing up on MTV. People would run down to grab the CD because it was eighteen ninety nine at the regular store. They were getting them you because they were getting them used from the promotional copies or people selling them re- real quickly because they were dumping stuff mm-hmm. that they didn't really care about after a year. They were making hand over fist money, and then as soon as like they got killed by the Napster and downloading because people didn't need to buy you CDs anymore. They could just get it off of Napster. Mm-hmm. I mean, CDs were the first medium we ever had that didn't wear out. So I mean, yep. that's significant. I, I spent a ton of money on UCDs. Yeah. Uh, there was a point where at Michigan state, I think there were five or six music stores. There was like, eventually a tower came in, but there was like three warehouse records within like four blocks. There was a wazoo that was, a used place in a place called FBC, which I think is the only one that's still there from those days. And then in Ann Arbor in the in the nineties, I went to a local record store called Wazoo with my brother and sister on a Saturday, and my brother and I were shopping. Some guy asked my sister if he can take her picture for the newspaper. It turns out they wrote an article about how there were eleven stores that sold music within like a six block radius at wow. that point in time. Yeah. And we we actually had a school kids records as well. And they had an annex that they opened up at a certain point that had all the alternative stuff. And then after they closed, they were school kids in exile. And they were they were really um, considered to be one of the, the the better independent record stores in the country. In fact, they actually put out uh, – you ever heard of Dodge Main? The, the band was uh, Dennis Tech from Radio Birdman and Scott oh, okay. Morgan. And I think one of the MC5 guys, they had a label that they were putting out their stuff on. So, hmm. I mean, Midwest college towns tended to have a lot of yeah. stores. And, you know, you would have the used, the all used disco rounds and all those places that are vanished now for the most part. Well, and the, and so. the end of the article or, or part of the article was how there used to be within walking distance of campus at Ohio State, at least half a dozen you know, reputable, like really big record stores that had a lot of stuff in them, and there's mm-hmm. none. They're, they're, they don't exist anymore because used kids just moved off of campus because it was too expensive to stay mm-hmm. there. Because it's all being converted into higher end shopping campus and partners. campus partners has taken yeah. over. It's all big store, you know, chain stuff, and the only thing that's left is now used kids, which has moved like three blocks away from campus. And then there's another record store called Magnolia Thunder Pussy, but that's down off campus in what's called the Short North District. That's not a part of campus. And there are little mom and pop, tiny little record stores that have popped up around Columbus, but they're not near the campus anymore. So if you're a kid on campus and you just have to walk, you're not going to be able to walk to a record store anymore. Additionally, this this is the era, the late the late 90s, where you know Borders, which 
started here in Ann Arbor as a, as a bookstore, got started selling media because they were bought by, I believe, Kmart, who then spun them off around the country and the world. You get Tower Records expanding all over the place. And uh, you get Best Buy coming in using music as a loss leader. I remember being in the first Best Buy in this area and talking to the guy who uh, was uh, just offhandedly talking to one of the guys in working the music section. And he said, basically, yeah, corporate will let me order whatever I want. So he was ordering a lot of punk rock stuff and a lot of weird stuff that you weren't necessarily going to find even in your borders or your, you know, unless it was a shop that focused on like blues or folk or something, you weren't going to find half this stuff in your average uh, used record store, or used CD store. Right. So, mm-hmm. and I'm and selling the records for nine ninety nine, And part of that was, you know, they could buy, they could go to the label and say, we're going to take 6 million copies of your new whatever. So we'll, it will enter the charts at number one. We're going to get them at a discounted price because we're going to guarantee purchasing them from you. We're going to sell them as a loss leader for 10 bucks a pop so people come in the store, and it's a win-win. Yeah, I remember in the early 2000s where there would be like the circulars for Best Buy, and it would be like, here's everything that's on sale this week for like eight ninety nine. Yeah. And you'd be like, yep. oh, the new what is $8.99? I'm definitely, and they expect you to go and buy a refrigerator at the same time. Yeah, well, or they expected that... They, well, they would expect that you go into Best Buy as a 15-year-old and you buy this record that when you're 25 or 30 and you need a stove or a microwave or a laptop that you're, you know, you're going to have that brand loyalty. Right. We've gotten a little far afield of our yeah. original okay. topic here. But uh, I think we've covered the five bands that I, I wanted to cover, which were Creed, Hootie, Matchbox, Live, and Cranberries. I think the thing that I wanted to wrap up with Hootie since we got is that that is a it, it that to me is the ultimate case of like a band burning people out mm-hmm. yeah. you know that even though it was mm-hmm. only 2 years they were literally everywhere and when i mean everywhere like they were on like ESPN before ESPN got into cross promotional marketing <clears throat> like they were friends with like Dan Patrick and doing like show you know showing up on ESPN Sports Center and stuff like that with Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick um even in their video i think the video for the only right. want to be with you is like built around yeah espn so and there's another example of a band that they really need i'm not quite sure i know they uh kind of tore the jam circuit every now and then they really needed to become a really compelling live band to kind of take that initial success and then have a you know a really nice career out of it where People are going, you know, like a Jimmy Buffett thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. Jimmy Buffett make, making records. I ain't selling money making records. He has his own little live thing that people like to go to, you know, the golf crowd and whatever. The the boaters like to go do yeah. that. And they needed to find their, like, Jimmy Buffett thing to capitalize on, you know, the ESPN rock. The screaming angle. racist asshole crowd. <laughs> yeah. well, however you want to flip it sure. if you think if you think about it uh you know we talked about pearl jam that basically they they had a grateful dead like or have garnered a grateful dead like following mm-hmm. that's how a lot of metal bands have have uh stayed relevant or stayed working you know another band we didn't talk about was the offspring who sold yeah. five million records and yeah. i'm sure that you know their records might not be selling but they can headline the warp tour and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a list of some of the other big-selling uh, albums from the 90s. You know, Garth Brooks, Kenny G. Oh, yeah. Celine Dion. I mean, all of them, I'm sure, 
can uh, go out there and, and do Vegas or, oh, you know, it's uh, huge in Vegas. Oh, yeah. You know, or play what, whatever arena shows and tour. The the yeah. outlier that I have on my list is Kid Rock selling 11 million records. Barf. And in 1998, that really so, happened. I'll never understand that. I'll never um, understand Kid Rock. Oh, you, you, I'll take you down river someday, or maybe not. <laughs> completely understand Kid Rock. Um, no, I get it. It's rock and metal, or hip hop and, and metal, and it's the like. It's like the. Um, it's like Rage Against the Machine, but from like another dimension, like the the evil. It's like the bizarro the upside dimension. Upside down. It's the upside so, down. <laughs> if you've watched Stranger Things, yes, Kid Rock is in the upside down where Rage Against the Machine would be, where they are like trying to make some sort of relevant music that's like socially conscious and he's like covered in goo and and yeah, and he's like the upside down version of like just pure evil. So if you think of, of Kid Rock, is Demogorgon. It's being the the opposite number of Jack White, who I'm not a fan of his music, but they come from the same place. They're about the same age. They they have the, a lot of the same influences. They're they're both you know downriver Detroit guys. Uh, you know the thing about Detroit always has been that because so many people came here for the jobs that they brought all their culture. So you had the blues, you had country music, a lot sure. of ethnic music from around the world. People came to Detroit for the jobs, and they brought their music and culture with them, and it all mixed together. And that's where you get, uh, you know, the that kind of punk blues thing that that uh, actually Kid Rock has experimented with as well. So isn't it uh, funny that both of those guys, now that you're saying that, have kind of now really more associate themselves with the South? Like Jack White oh, yeah. lives in Memphis, and I think Kid Rock is way, I think, more relevant in the South than he is. And so, and, uh, that's just funny. The, uh, you kind of yeah. forget at this point that they have Detroit roots. Well, also it, both were hats. <laughs> Detroit has a <laughs> major, major amount of people from the south. I mean, the, the city next door to mine is Ypsilanti, Michigan. We refer to it as Ipsituckee for a reason. I mean, it mm. people from the south came up to work in the auto industry in the 40s and 50s. And uh, that's, that's all there is to it. Jane, I, mean, I know a little bit about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but that, the auto industry. That's kind of the um, where both of those those acts come from. But yeah, I was surprised that Kid Rock sold that many records. Yeah, uh, another band that's gonna hurt Katie when I say this is uh, Counting Crows because she's a, a big fan. But they were seven million copies of August and everything after the follow up Recovering the Satellites did well. It had the Long December single on it, mm-hmm. but did not sell as well as that record. And then it, after that, it was a very precipitous decline. I kept buying them. You're the person that I, kept buying them. I'm the one. I have to say, I listened to a little bit of uh, some of these acts this afternoon just to kind of familiarize myself. And I was surprised how much I actually enjoyed listening to Counting Crows. Yeah, I, it kind of holds up. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think maybe uh, Adam Durrance needs to update the look. He's starting to look like Sideshow Bob. <laughs> he is like Sideshow <laughs> Bob. He always looked like Sideshow Bob. Uh, he needs Bob. to go to Vegas. I know. I, I think it might be time he loses that. But they were really good live. They were interesting live. Like it wasn't just well, he's listening like, to the it, CD. You couldn't. It wasn't just like pressing. Well, because he dances like, around like an American Tom York. No, that's not it at all. Although I do also love Tom York. But like, they did different arrangements of their own songs. I mean, mm-hmm. they were they were interesting to watch live. They're a band that could easily have grown grown with their audience. 
as, yeah. as far as taste and accessibility and all mm. those kinds of things. I think burnout is certainly a factor with that mm. one. Yeah. Do some of these bands like uh, them, for example, I, I know I hit this point with the cranberry that didn't actually make, but some of them just stop making music. Like, I, I don't know that they like, right. It, yeah. uh, how it's hard to evaluate. Like, did they stop making music just because it wasn't selling or did they just stop making music because they didn't need to or want to anymore? Well, or, one, one band I was going to throw out there that's I'm surprised sold 5 million records sublime. And obviously we know that the singer died before the record came out. And even though the band tried to go on, it wasn't the same. So, I mean, maybe there, I mean, there's some of these bands that probably fell apart and they were like, I got my money. I'm going away. You know, that, that, that band sold 5 million records. I know. Yeah. I know. I was like looking, I'm like, did Rancid sell 5 million records? How about bad religion? How about the Mr. T experience? You know, I was looking at all these like indie punk, like warp tour bands. I'm like, Aside from the offspring, it was just sublime. Yeah. Wow. Well, and Green Day. I, I feel so out of touch. Well, Green Day, sublime but they're was still Green Day's huge a, in high school. We've covered Green Day on our bands we did not expect to survive the '90s, and yet they did. So, but that's a different, I, so that's a different episode. I think we need to have a. Uh, I have another idea for a roundtable based on this and some other conversations. It's the U.S. version of the country, and we we have guests on from that other country and try to figure out like. Interesting. Why was uh, why did Oasis only sell six million records here? <laughs> and uh, why did you? Buy what's that band called? What's the band we just talked about? Sublimes. Yeah, sold just as many. <laughs> so <laughs> how does that happen? You got, you, I think that there is something though about bands that kind of packed up and went home, like uh, uh, James. Remember the band James? Yep. Right. They, they had late. Which did okay in the states, but they continued to release stuff in Europe, and you couldn't get their records in the states. Or the Cardigans. Yeah. Cardigans right. were another band that did well in Europe, and actually, a lot of my metalhead friends love the Cardigans. Oh, I love that band. I mean, they're a great band, but commercially, they had like one hit in the states, mm-hmm. and then they they basically went back to back to Europe, and you know, th- there is a certain amount of that, and I'm sure that there's bands that had one hit in the states and. You know, we're big in Canada or in Australia or, you know, the UK or, you know, what what's the the uh, the joke from singles? We're big in Belgium. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, one of my favorite uh, bands that we're actually going to be doing a review of soon is the Tragically Hip. And outside of Buffalo, Detroit, basically the cities that you can walk to Canada, yep. they have basically no impact in the United States. And they play stadiums in Canada. I mean, we're talking, they play like 50, 60,000 seat stadiums up in Canada. And I've seen them at a park for free in Columbus, Ohio, standing five feet away. And nobody gave a shit. Like, that's a band that you're, you know, they tried over and over again. And people just did not get what they were doing here in the United States. Well, there's there's a lot of acts that... uh, you know, are and completely anonymous in, in another country or, you know, anonymous in their own country and they go and they play Europe or Asia and they're treated like gods. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we have uh, hit well over the hour mark in this episode, so it'd be a good time for us to to wrap up. Are there any other bands just quickly that you're like, I, I forgot that this band sold a gajillion records because they're not anywhere relevant at all you mentioned quickly the um the offspring and i mentioned uh, counting crows 
anybody else have any other ones? I have two that we don't have to go into any depth on them, but Third Eye Blind and Collective sure. Soul. Well, here's the thing about Third Eye Blind, though. Didn't they just play at Lollapalooza in Chicago yeah. and like they had a gigantic crowd that was singing along with them? Is that yeah, but because of them? Or I think or is it's that be- because because of the what they did at the Republican convention. I think both. I also think that there's a weird emo generational aspect to them where they are seen as sort of in the in the same way that like Weezer's Pinkerton is not an emo album but has somehow become influential uh, or Sunny Day Real Estate as well it's not necessarily uh-huh. emo but it's seen as influential for some reason Third Eye Blind is in that category and like 25 year olds who are just now like getting into emo are looking at Third Eye Blind as like right. somehow relevant like a really? grandfather yeah. yeah they would have no idea like if you know the faction of people who thought they were uncool like that's not relevant to them anymore like if it sounds close enough and it came out at the same time right because i think if yeah. you went back and listened to that first third eye blind record and you like listen to him singing and, and those lyrics that are kind of you know uh, introspective yeah. and whatnot you go oh i could see how you would misconstrue this as being emo or influential upon emo did uh I had Collective Soul too, but did they did they crack five million on any record? I thought not, it was just not a little indi- under. Yeah, not individually, but they sold yeah. massively apparently in Canada. Okay, yeah, and I think the yeah the first three or four records uh, when you add them up, it's pretty significant, no doubt. Yeah, we need to just do a whole show on them because they're that's a a weird band. I believe like that first album that had uh, Shine on yeah. stuff. That's just like all demos. Yeah, they weren't even a band. He was, he was like apparently shopping that as a publishing thing, and some radio station picked it up and started playing the song. And he had to throw a band together and release the record. And yeah, it was weird. In the whole thing. It's a weird uh, situation with that band, but uh, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get into that. So uh, it'd be a good time for us then to wrap up and say thank you to Eric Peterson joining us from. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Eric, what do you have? What do you have going on right now that you'd like to uh, share with us? So I've been on, on a couple of other podcasts recently. I was on the Projection Booth podcast talking about the '80s film The Hidden, and we definitely talked about some music there because Concrete Blonde is all over that soundtrack. Cool. I was on the film podcast talking about the Rambo movies, and then um, I've actually started doing uh, vinyl community videos for YouTube where I show my vinyl records and talk about them. So that, cool. that's kind of what I've been up to. And people can just find that by going to, is there a, is there like a YouTube channel for that? Yeah, it's just my name, but okay. the, probably the best, best places. Um, if you go on Facebook and you're a member of the love that album podcast, Facebook page, which is the podcast. I do a compilation edition for every, every month. And, uh, usually a little, uh, blurb on the main episode. Or uh, there's a page called Feed My Ears where we just talk about music and it's very much music oriented. There's not a lot of other stuff. It's very friendly. So anybody looking for a Facebook group without any drama about music, that's a good one. It's called Feed My Ears again. So, yep. Um, and, you know, if, if you want, I can shoot you the uh, the URL for the yeah we'll put it the, in the uh, YouTube thing and you can throw it up in the show notes. Excellent. Hedy, what do you got going on? Well, I was just looking up the album sales of Vertical Horizon. Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> Which oh, was yeah. higher than I thought. I think it's close to three million. Oh, that's so pretty. That's pretty high. 
it doesn't really hit your my mark five million for mark. this conversation, but that was just in America though. So with my overseas, uh, it might have made this list. Yeah, I I tried to block that band out from As memory. As you should. That's that's fair. Um, I go back to school tomorrow. Which will be a week ago when we actually post this, but. All right. Well, good luck at another school year. Right. Hope that goes well for you. I'm just going to continue to shape the minds of children. Excellent. Everywhere. <laughs> and by everywhere, I mean in the greater Powell-Lewis Center area. Okay. Thank you. I <laughs> uh, want to remind everybody that uh, you can leave some positive feedback over at iTunes. And, of course, join us at Patreon for bonus content uh, previews. You can vote on albums that we're going to be reviewing. Like we currently just put one up uh, for our next review. You can help us pick a uh, album on future episodes. And if you join at the one dollar level, you get all that. If you join at the two fifty level, you get a album review after twelve months of membership. That's it for Jay. I'm Tim. We're out. Thanks to Eric and Katie for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode. Of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs>